Welcome to another episode of Global Conversations. Today, I welcome a leader in the domain of change and transformation, Hiral Gudka. She is the founding director of Convergent Consulting. She has facilitated numerous workshops across continents, mainly Europe, Asia, Africa, and she has been a coach and a facilitator of global organizations and NGOs. She leverages her deep expertise in multicultural, multi-generational workplaces to help organizes organizations build inclusive environments and facilitate transformation change. Hiral, it's fascinating to have you with me today and to dive into a deep discussion about class bias and its relations to organizational culture, equity, and inclusion. Thank you, Andre. It's really brilliant to be here. Thanks. So usually how I start these conversations is getting the audience to know who you are as a person. So first, you know, tell me, tell us about yourself, your career journey, and how you got into this work that you're doing now. Sure. So I have been doing this work within the EDI space for um, nine and a half years, pretty much nine and a half years. Before that, I used to be in insurance financial services, doing something completely different. I used to be an actuary. Everything about my work was related to data and risk analysis and understanding um, what the organizations I worked at needed to do to reduce the levels of risks that they were exposed to. Now, the reason why I ended up changing to do something so different is kind of twofold. I was approaching, I I think I'd spent, by the time I'd spent about um, 11 or 12 years in my former career, I was really just starting to feel a bit bored. I, I I felt stagnant in what I could see in terms of what the next 20 years looked like you know it wasn't it wasn't even about progression it was just what is the work and do i want to do it for another 20 years and the answer was just a resounding no um i didn't immediately know what else i would do instead because giving up a, a career like that giving up a salary like that is not easy it's not something you do lightly Now, at the same time, while I was wrestling with these sorts of um, questions, the insurance sector itself in about 20, around about 2012, was starting to have conversations about why they weren't seeing greater levels of women in senior positions. And, you know, there was a lot of head scratching going on, um, a lot of not very uh, enlightened conversations. And what really, I think, looking back at least, what really triggered my move into the work now that I do now was a conversation I had with um, a, a, an old manager of mine. He was a guy that I'd worked with for a really long time. He was very good at what he did. We had a brilliant working relationship, which was why I could be so open with him when they started having these conversations about women's representation at senior levels. And I said to him, the way this organization is having this conversation is so clumsy that what you have done in the last couple of weeks is basically ensured any senior woman who you hire is going to be seen as a token hire. I'm not saying that that's just what the men are going to think. I think it too, because of how you're talking about it. And it was that that really got me thinking that it doesn't matter what we try to do in EDI. If we don't get our comms right from the beginning, then you're going to lose people before you've even got started. 
And actually, I had another example of that come up just last week. My cousin told me a story about a friend of his, and I put up a post about this on LinkedIn today, um, mm -hmm. that this friend of his, let's call him Jay, and he works at an inter uh, international consultancy. He was asked by a colleague to participate in a race awareness session that they were going to run. And mm -hmm. he said, well, why? What, what do you want me to talk about? in this session because they said oh can you share your experience and so his colleague said to him well you know as as a Sikh man in the UK um can you can you talk to people about how how hard it's been for you as a Sikh man and also can you talk about the uh farmer protests in India that happened a few years ago and Jay said well actually no I'm not going yeah. to do this I'm not willing to do this first of all the farmer protests in India are a political issue that have no bearing on mm -hmm. race and racism in the UK and it's got nothing to do with my experience here and also my parents came to the UK decades ago and yes they have faced racism I have faced racism too but I don't see myself as having had a hard life I don't look at those experiences that I've had and um and consider myself to be worse off. It's just something that's happened to me. Now, that's his viewpoint, right? But he felt the need to express that viewpoint because this person came at him saying, well, your life has been so hard, right? Because you're a Sikh man. All these assumptions that come into play and what's happened now is that Jay has no respect for the EDI work his company is trying to do because their starting position is, oh, you must be oppressed and disempowered and see yourself that way just because of your race and so they lost him in the communication and that's really what I've been helping organizations with of course more more the deeper stuff as well but my god get the comms right no I hear you and it's it's internal communications um you know within the organization having a knowledge because once you're you know people assume that because you're attached to the homeland, you're, it's going to be affecting you, but not everyone. It does not affect everyone as a whole. I did notice that post this morning as I was kind of going through my posts, as I usually do, and that post came up. The other, Another post that came up that really intrigued me was about, you know, not engaging in every single EDI issue out there, right? Um, you know, and we're bombarded by a whole bunch of, siloed issues that that people are and of course you know there's some who will who will come at you and say oh why aren't you talking about this issue right and that's becomes that becomes a little bit you know a, a little bit stressful for people in the sense that why are you involving me in something that either doesn't really affect me personally or i'm not going down this road because it's not something i want to be involved with so that's the that's the problem especially now that we're coming into this new I would say activist role of EDI um, that's been taking shape over the last, ever since I guess Black Lives Matter, even before that. And then now we're now, you know, and now you've pointed it out rightfully so. And that's something that we need to, we need to start having a conversation about in terms of why do we, why do we need to talk about this even more? So, um, you know, that was great for you to, 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 to raise that a little bit in the sense of, um, you know, why are we, why are we talking about this? Right. 
yeah, we have to have better conversations about this. We have to have more um, emotionally mature and nuanced conversations about it too, because not everyone defines themselves by the tough things that they may have gone through. You know, it, it, I, I certainly don't. And also one thing that I'm very clear about in my work is I don't talk about my personal experiences, mm -hmm. my personal experiences, whatever they might be, whatever other people might assume them to be because I'm a woman, because I'm brown skinned, they are irrelevant to the work that I do. Because let's say, for example, if I only talk about gender and race issues with my clients i can only give them a very specific lens if i'm talking about my experience i can tell them what my life has been like that doesn't mean they suddenly understand what it's like to be every woman and it doesn't mean that they understand what it means to be brown on every single brown person has therefore had this experience it becomes a really limiting way to do the work we have to get better at understanding that people are going to have ways of thinking that we don't get that maybe we don't even like and that is what inclusion is because how are you still going to find a way to connect with that person in the workplace if you don't like it you don't have to connect with them outside of the workplace but in the workplace we are there for a reason and that's to get the job done no one is going into well most people aren't going into work to be activists so people who take the edi activist lens in workplaces are often very surprised when they go when they come up against people like Jay who say, I don't want to be a spokesperson for my mm -hmm. community and especially not in the way you think I should be. Yeah, you said it succinctly well. Um, and that's something that I've encountered too in the sense of, you know, not everyone, especially if you're working in a, in a I would both say in a global and a local, or locally uh, mm. run organization, right? They both, because people are just, you know, fixated on whatever else is going on, thinking that, oh, yeah, it affects you. And it doesn't, right? It doesn't. And even the conversations here, too, of in North America, where it's strictly a lot of times is about race, which permeates both Canadian and, and, and U.S. borders, but mainly affects Americans. And then people get into it and saying, oh, it could happen here in Canada. And I'm like, hold your horses. We have the one thing I want to say is that we have when we're doing this work, it should be about intersectional experiences because every single experience is different, right? And we can't lump everyone into the same pot. And that's what, that's what we, that's what the, the problems that we have here is, is that, and we're seeing this all over the globe and, and yeah, so definitely that's, that's something that we, uh, that we see, but like I said, thanks for uh, raising that issue. And so, now getting back to the to the whole conversation of what we're what we're going to talk about here is mm -hmm. you know another post of yours that really raised my eye and something that has really been on my mind. I know I talked about it um a couple of times in a couple of previous podcasts or webcasts I should say is about class bias and you raised it in your in one of your uh, in one of your posts a few months back you tied it to a guardian article. And so Let's start off with class bias. What, in your in your words, succinctly, what is class bias and what does that mean in the modern workplace? Okay, so class bias in the UK is 
there's a couple of things about it. First of all, it's very difficult to have class as a protected characteristic. We have in the UK, we have nine protected characteristics and people have been saying for a very long time that class should be one of them. We need to add that on, have 10 protected characteristics. It's incredibly difficult. Lawyers have been discussing this for years. It's incredibly difficult to codify class in the UK. And maybe it's the same in Canada too. But in the UK, the reason why they say it can't be done is because people don't define their class the, the class that they're in in the same way. So some people very much define themselves by the class that they were born into, even if they have, you know, financially speaking, maybe transcended that class. Um, other people very much define themselves by the the class they are now, according to their bank balance, and not the one that they were born with. And usually it's a, it's that upward social mobility thing, right? So some people yeah. will say, oh, well, I'm middle class now, even if their parents were working class. It's not that often that you'll find someone who has maybe lost their money saying, well, now I'm working class, but I used to be middle class. Either way, how do you legally define it when people don't define themselves in the same way? It's not the same as defining race. It's not the same as defining um, sexuality or age. These things are what they are. But class, we can, you know, we can move around. So that's the first thing. The, the other part of class bias that exists uh, or the types of class bias that exist are related to cultural elements but then also financial elements so in the uk you know people british people who are either born here or have lived here for a very long time can quickly make assumptions about what class a person is based on the way that they speak based on maybe the kinds of holidays they go on or the clothes they wear, the hobbies they may, they may participate in. Of course, that doesn't mean that you're going to get it right 100% of the time. But, you know, 90% of the time, you will probably be correct. So then that comes into play when people are looking... Um, looking down on what those cultural aspects of class might be and then if a person is participating in those that's going to affect the way they are seen then there's the financial and the professional side of class so what sort of school did you go to what sort of education have you had what sort of job are you in now what sort of job did your parents have um, so these elements of class again play a big role or have played a big role and the data proves it. I think the, the post that you were talking about that I put up a few months ago was about a Guardian article, like you said, that spoke to a report that was released in November of last year that said working class people in the UK are paid £6,000 a year less than um, middle class people who are in exactly the same professional roles. So there's no other... Um, demarcating factors at play here. It's they're just looking at same levels of experience in professional roles and working class people are getting £6,000 a year less. It also affects graduate starting salaries. There was research carried out in 2020 by the Trade Union Congress over here that found um, graduates from working class backgrounds are half as likely to start on the same 
uh, salary as graduates from middle class backgrounds. So it's affecting people right from the beginning of their career, which if you then look at what that means for wealth over the entirety of a person's life, mm-hmm. people from working class backgrounds are on the back foot right from the beginning. And so mm-hmm. we really need to have better conversations about this because it shows up in workplaces all the time. Yeah, no, and that's and that's that's the hidden factor in all of this work. And and one of the things I I you know some people will say it's it's for better or for worse in terms of why the UK talks about this more than say in Canadian perspective. I mean, the economy affects everybody, regardless of nation, regardless of gender, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, there are politics behind it, but you know, this is this is a topic that is not even touched on this side of the world. And I'm and I like I said, I commend the work that I've seen that has been discussed on on within the UK about this about class bias. So, but then again, let's talk about it from the EDI practitioner and leader space. Mm-hmm. Because it's so difficult to point of, to to point a finger at what class really or how it's defined, you know, are there ways that practitioners and leaders in the EDI space, you know, should they talk about this? How can they talk about this? You know, what are your thoughts on that? So there's the class bias that shows up on an interpersonal level, and then there's class bias that shows up um, in organizations at a systemic level. So let's look at both of those. I'll give you examples of both of those. I used to work in insurance, as I said, and back in the mid 2000s, I worked with I worked with a colleague who was from a part of the UK just outside London called Essex. And she had uh, just what's called an Essex accent. And people at work used to make fun of her for it to the point where. I I started to notice that she was speaking slightly differently. So I asked her, "What what's happening? You you don't sound like you've sounded in the past. And she said, she was very young. She was, so this is the mid 2000s. I think she was only 20. And she said that she had asked her parents to help her pay for elocution lessons so that she could speak better English like the people like a lot of the people in the office so that they would stop making fun of her so that kind of interpersonal class bias or accent bias was Mm -hmm. showing up and it was affecting her confidence it was affecting how she could participate in a professional capacity Mm -hmm. because she felt self-conscious all the time so we have to leaders need to look out for this whether it's in themselves or if they see it around them if people are treating each other because you know you could pass it off as a joke but we have to pay attention to how people are responding to these jokes some people it's fine. It's water off a duck's back. You can tell. And if you're not sure, you can check in with them. But with other people, it's they, they are going to have um, they're going to have a reaction to it that isn't a positive one. And so leaders have that responsibility to be paying attention and making sure they're dealing with behaviors that are having a negative impact on their employees. Now, from a systemic level, an an example of how class bias can often show up is um, demanding that. 
employees that the employees are recruited from only specific universities from mm -hmm. limited you know from a very limited number of high-end universities and yes we can see we can easily understand why organizations are doing that but then at the same time if they are talking about socioeconomics if they're to talking about social mobility if they're talking about diversity at all then they are hamstringing themselves by that very action, by assuming that the best candidates can only be found from a very small group of universities, and you then cut out a whole swathe of people who, for any number of reasons, may not have gone there, whether it's the cost of living in those towns, uh, whether it's you know, just the accessibility from the schools that they were in, did they push them to apply to those sorts of universities? It doesn't mean that a person is less capable just because they didn't go to a certain type of uni. So again, we've got to look at all of those sorts of decisions we might be making in the, in the workplace because it can absolutely have an impact on the socioeconomic spread of the people you have in your company. Yeah. And, you know, as I'm thinking about what you're saying, there are so many different biases that exist. I mean, if we get into it, you know, affinity bias, confirmation bias, mm -hmm. and whatnot. And, you know, as practitioners that we are, we talk about this a lot within our organizations, but sometimes even those who do the work are biased in, in terms of this. Yeah. And, you know, and that's something that's, that's, you know, that's disheartening to hear because if we're talking about inclusion in our workplaces and advocating for inclusivity, yet, you know, we're, we're judging people based on where they come from, the, the universities. Like I saw it big time when I worked in the U.S., um, you know, and there it's even more prominent than it is in Canada. But mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there is there are judgment calls based on where you are and what part of Canada you are in because of your political stance or your your accent or whatever. So, yeah. you know, so and of course, then it becomes the whole class bias issue of, you know, why you're why you're thinking like that, what goes into your decision making, et cetera. So, you know, those are things that we need to we need to start honing in on pretty much. And uh, and yeah, so. Definitely, there's there's uh, there's some work that needs to be done, especially from the work that we do uh, as professionals and practitioners in this in this space. And so, you know, one of the things, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about is, and and I think we we've, we've raised it in terms of the impact of uh, the decision making and the power distribution in organizations. So. We've talked about it briefly, but how what are what can be done to counteract that outside of say relieving our unconscious biases? Is there anything else you think of that that organizations can do to improve their cultures to to avoid this and even practitioners? What are you know what are some things that you've you've come across as solutions to this? Okay, so I think one of the most misunderstood concepts these days from an organizational perspective is psychological safety. It's been turned into this term that uh, now seems to imply, because of how people talk about it on social media, it seems to imply that we have to have workplaces that are completely covered in cotton wool when no one ever, ever gets upset. Mm -hmm. So first of all, that's not what psychological safety is. If we have real psychological safety where we're able to ask each other questions where we're able to learn from mistakes that we've made where we can 
share ideas without the fear of being shot down, then we can find ourselves with the foundation we need to be able to interrupt biases because we can't get rid of these biases. They are just neurologically, they they are inbuilt into us now, right? Mm-hmm. But the, by the time we become aware of them, they are so ingrained, they're not going to go anywhere. So what that means is we we need to get better understanding when our biases might be kicking in and to be able to interrupt them. And sometimes we need other people's help doing that. So that means if we are interviewing lots of people, we should be putting ourselves in positions where we can talk to a colleague or a group of colleagues and say, this is what I've got in front of me. These are the people. This is what I'm thinking about who we should hire and let them ask you questions about why you've chosen that person, why this person is number two on the list, why this person didn't even make the short list and not get defensive in the mm-hmm. process of those questions being asked, because ultimately we can only counteract bias in the workplace if we're willing to look at it from the perspective of us being committed to making high quality decisions. Because bias mm-hmm. usually leads to lower quality decisions because we mm-hmm. get things wrong. We, yeah. we jump to conclusions. And in the workplace, if we are not willing to do the work required and have these conversations required to be making higher quality decisions, then why are these people in business anyway? Yeah. If we can propose it in those terms and say, look, by by interrogating our decisions so that we can catch bias if it's crept in, we are going to end up with so much better, so, so such better outcomes mm-hmm. um, for everything that we're trying to do. An example that I use in one of my workshops is, uh, so way back when YouTube was designing its video upload function feature on its mobile yeah. app, yeah. I hope I don't get this story wrong, but when they were designing that, they were finding when they were beta testing that a significant percentage, somewhere between 5 to 10% of videos, when they opened the app back up, they were upside down and they couldn't figure out why. Why are these videos going up, being uploaded and they're the wrong way around? And it turned out that they hadn't allowed for the fact that there's about 5 to 10% of users who are left-handed who turn their phone the other other way around. And they just needed to make a quick switch to the code to fix that. They didn't hate left-handed people, right? They didn't have anything against left-handed people. They just didn't think about them. They didn't ask enough questions. They didn't have the perspective in the room. And so they missed out on uh, a really important factor in the design of their product these sorts of biases affect decisions all the time and it's just because of what we're aware of or what we are used to it doesn't mean that there is that there's always underlying malicious intent and hatred there so we've got if we can understand that and then think okay it's fine if we ask each other questions and then come to a different decision to the one we have now we can stop taking it so personally yeah and you know thinking about this in terms of the the training uh that uh you know that consultants and trainers do you know they they tend to be hired on things like uh you know race or gender predominantly here it's it's in north america it's it's about race and i know mm-hmm. in europe for most of it is you know there is a gender but also race conversations too 
Um, and so putting that into their uh, their training or their their training programs, if you will, sounds to be like it's a very important factor uh, that needs to be addressed, um, not only in a you know not only within the workplace, but also even in the training material that is mm. uh, that is being mentioned here. And uh, and yeah, and 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 I agree with you. And this is something that I've had a I've had a difficult time with when we're you know when we're doing this work is you know why aren't we talking about this a little bit more. And why are practitioners doing this? And it's just because of the fact that they're not knowledgeable of this. So how can they, how can one be knowledgeable of these inherent class biases? Um, Although we can read about it and what is there, are there any other ways that people can, can learn about it and, and apply it to their, to their workplaces? That's an interesting question. To be honest, Andre, you know, the the things that I have learned over the Mm -hmm. nine years have come from my understanding of things at various points in time being challenged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even, even the post, even the story I described earlier about Jay saying, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about my experience because I don't agree with the premise of what you're putting to me. The person who he said that to wasn't happy with the response and didn't understand it. But are they aware enough to go and now do something about that and try and understand why that might be the case. People get triggered by all sorts of things, right? There's just, we've all got trigger points. But if we don't do anything to understand why we've got been triggered in that moment, then we'll never learn and we'll never get anywhere. So that story I I shared to you about my colleague and how she went to elocution lessons, I didn't think about that for years until after it happened. I certainly didn't think about it at the time. I was just like, oh, that's a bit weird. And I just carried on with my work. And I didn't think about it until well over a decade after it happened. And then it informed some of my work. And, Mm -hmm. and And it's going to be piecemeal like that, particularly if a company has got people doing EDI work internally where that's not their main role. You know, people yeah. don't have time to sit there and become experts if in, in EDI, if they are just an EDI champion, but their day job is something different. Yeah. And, and to be honest, even EDI professionals who are in-house, a lot of the time people get into this work because they have their own very specific experiences of discrimination. And now, mm-hmm. then they decide they want to do something about it. Yep. But if you have your own experience of discrimination, you're going to have a really narrow lens on that one element. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go into this work because of experiences experiences of discrimination. That doesn't mean people might not have been biased against me. Yeah, they might have, but I wasn't paying attention to any of that. I was just kind yeah. of doing what I was doing. And I noticed in EDI that there is a very specific way in which this can be done badly. And if we don't correct that, then none of the work matters at all. Yeah. So we have to have a more expansive view of EDI. We have to have a more expansive view of our existence that where we don't narrow ourselves down to 
a handful of identity markers other people might narrow us let them that's not my problem if someone wants to narrow me down to being a a narrow me down into a brown woman and make loads of assumptions about me because of that let Mm -hmm. them i can't change everyone's minds i can't get into their heads but i don't have to see myself the way other people see me no you've you've hit the nail on the head girl because you know it's it's so funny you've mentioned all of that because you know initially i was i thought to myself i wanted to get into this work but i felt like i wasn't black enough to do this work i'm biracial right sure people mm-hmm. can look at me as white passing whatever they think of me as arabic some people say spanish whatever it is okay fine and that's the assumptions people will make and then then i said you know what screw them i'm going to get into this work somehow some way then when I finished my my master's degree and I said, yeah, this is the direction I want to go into. It's like, oh, yeah, it's it's a perfect timing because it was just at the height of of uh, George Floyd's murder. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, you flipping morons. This is not the reason why I want to get into this work. It's because of the fact that I, you know, this is what I've experienced. And it's funny because I talk about, you know, why this really matters to this topic of class bias matters to me is how I grew up and where I grew up. And I grew up in a, in, in social housing. Right. And Mm -hmm. I saw the discrimination. I saw the, uh, the biases that existed, whether it was in, in school. And then of course, you know, throughout my career in terms of the bullying. And and like you said, you don't think of these things until much later in life and how it affects you, how it affects your, your, um, you know, your psyche in the workplace in terms of how you perform and all of that. So, you know, getting into all that, and that's why, you know, that's why I do this work is because of my lived experiences, but it's not just based on one certain aspect. And people will assume that's why you get into it because it's, it's about race. And yeah. that's, you know, and you've put it so eloquently in how do we, you know, how we should define doing this work. And, and, and yeah, and, you know, classes being one of them but you know but other than that there's there's a lot more factors that need to def- that we need to define and if you're in it as if you're getting it to champion you know black issues for instance and you're not seeing anything getting done that's because you're not you're not looking at the other uh the other isms or the other um you know, the other marginalized and racialized communities that exist because you're just so, so focused on one area. And these are the things that I've learned throughout my career in terms of this. And I, you know, I, I really commend you and, and, you know, it just, it just really lit a light bulb in my head in terms of my career and how you've, and how you've approached your, uh, your consultancy and your, and, and your practice, if you will. So. And it's been a real, um, it's been a real process because there's been times, especially when I first started, where, you know, you, you look at how other people are talking about things. And when you're trying to get your own head around the message that you want to put out there, I think there were times where I was thinking, oh, maybe I should just talk about race because that's what people will want me for. Right. Maybe I should talk about I, I did get invited to speak at an International Women's Day event in um I think it was 2020, right before the lockdown kicked in. Mm-hmm. And I didn't talk about my own experiences to a big degree, but I did a little bit. And I look back now and I'm like, it's just irrelevant. My experiences are irrelevant to 
the work that I'm trying to get organizations to do because it gives them too narrow a lens. My job is to be an expert and help them see lots of different lenses, to listen to lots of different people and disseminate that information to my clients. Because what use is it, me just talking about my experience? It's a very, I, I personally think, and some people won't like it, but I think it's a very self centered way to approach EDI. Yeah. If you only talk about how you and your society, your you and your group have been wronged. Because there's going to be if that's the only approach you take, there's going to be plenty of other people saying, well, hang on a minute, you're skipping out a whole other massive group of people um, just to talk about yourself. And I'm not here to improve inclusion and representation for brown people or for women of a certain age. I'm here to help companies understand the, the true conversations they're going to have to have internally to create a better and inclusive environment for whoever joins their company. And, you know, to close off, um, it just reminded me that EDI practitioners, consultants, leaders, whatever you want to call them or call us, it reminds me of this book that I read several months ago. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's called, it's called Range by, by, uh, by David Epstein. And the book itself is about generalists in a specialized Mm -hmm. world. Corporations are specialized in certain areas, but there are generalists, you know, like there's HR generalists, there's generalists in policy, et cetera, et cetera. But in doing this work, you start to realize that people just, just do the specialization themselves. Like you said, based on professional experiences, I suggest people read range. Um, because it is an excellent book that talks about that talks about generalist as a whole and why it should not be shunned. Um, you know, as someone who has a wide range of interests, and you can cater to you can you can be more inclusive that way. He doesn't really talk about it all that much, but inclusivity is is what we what we look for in the work that we do. And being a generalist and having knowledge in how they intersect is exactly what, why we, we get into this work and why we should be more generalists in this work. I agree with you. I think having being generalists, looking at a wider picture of all these different things that are, that are combining and interplaying with each other and having a whole lot more humility while we're doing it. Yeah, definitely. That's another thing. Humility and the other thing I want, even I know we're going around this, but it makes a lot of sense because I'm agreeing with you in a lot and adding to what you're saying is also, we're talking about humility, we're talking about generalists, and we're talking about agility, especially in this time and time and, and, and space that we're in right now. Because as EDIs, EDI practitioners, or even as leaders of, an, of a corporation, you need, in this day and age, you need to be agile, right? You can't be focused on, cutting corners and cutting pieces and stuff. And that's why, you know, I have a personal vendetta, if you will, with, uh, with, uh, people in the change management practice in terms of, in terms of, uh, agile versus lean, because lean is one way of getting to it, but it's very minuscule. Whereas agile, you're looking at things and, and changing things as you go, especially given the fact that we are in a society where things are constantly changing, um, you know, at a rapid pace because of technology, because of social issues it's, and, and world issues, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm really with you on this. And I think, you know, anyone who's listening to our conversation today, I hope, I hope they, if, if they've been triggered by anything, if they've thought I totally disagree with what Andre and Hiral are saying, then even if you stay thinking that way, unpick it, make sure you understand why you disagree with us, because <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, EDI work out there that to me seems like it hasn't been well thought out. And yeah. if you're going to disagree with us, yeah, that's fine. I don't want to live in a world where everyone agrees with me, but make sure that you truly understand what it is you dislike about what I'm saying today, because yeah. I, that's what I'm not seeing enough of. I'm just seeing people saying I disagree, um, but they can't expand on it. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly, and that's and that's something that that needs to be said more for the people, as they say, for the people in the back of the room, right? And and I know that uh, my previous guest, uh, Dr. Jonathan Ashon Lamb, he said the same thing on on LinkedIn just recently about the fact mm -hmm. that you know if you disagree with something, say it, but not just say you disagree because it's not aligned with what you're saying and you can't back it up. So, so I, you know. We can go on forever on this, but you know what? I really, I really, really appreciate this conversation because, you know, we're not, you know, it's not a matter of us agreeing about, about, you know, class bias and, and the profession itself. It's what we're doing to improve the profession itself. And your words and your, and your candor is very enlightening and very refreshing. So, uh, so here I'll thank you for this. I really appreciate it. And, I want to end off one of the questions I was supposed to ask at the beginning, and usually I do, and then huh. and it's it's more of a more of a lighthearted uh, end to the conversation. So, first one is, what is something that someone would not normally know about you? You know, when um I thought about this because you sent me that question earlier, and to, normally I hate that sort of question. I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea how I'm going to answer that, but there is. There is one thing. A lot of people think that I'm a massive extrovert, particularly because, you know, I'm running workshops. I don't have any problems standing in front of a group of people like whatever. It doesn't matter what the topic is. It doesn't matter how hard the subject might be. No issues. But I am not at all an extrovert. Like, give me the opportunity to sit at home and not go out and not meet people. And I will take it every time. <laughs> You just want to wind down, right? That's usually what it is, especially, right? Um, you know, I would think you're in that, what they call the ambivert section, right? Yeah, I think I'm, of... I'm a bit of an ambivert, yeah. yeah. But yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. still leaning more towards the introvert. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm the opposite. I'm, the, I'm leaning towards extrovert, but I'm, but I'm still that ambivert where it's like, okay, I need to be less high-strung, and, 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 and yeah, and just relax, but that's just me, but we all are different in one way, how we define mm -hmm. ambivertness or whatever the, whatever the adjective is or whatnot. But, and so last question I have for you on the fun side is what is the one song or book that really gets you going and motivates you? Um, okay. The song that really gets me going is don't Stop Believing by Journey. Mm, okay. I can listen to that on loop. 
Um, the book that gets me going and motivates me, I, I wasn't going to, it's not a book that motivates me, so to speak, but it's just a book that I absolutely love. It's called Project Hail Mary. And right now I can't remember the name of the author, but it's the same person that wrote The Martian. You know that film mm. with Matt Damon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So whoever the author was that wrote that book, he also mm -hmm. wrote a book called Project Hail Mary, and it's just one of my favorite books. So uh, I highly recommend it. Um, to be honest, I have to read so much real life stuff for my work that when I'm not when I'm reading for pleasure, I've I've ended up in the last couple of years just reading lots of sci-fi, and that's that's what that book is. I love it. That was that's uh, that's something that's good to know because I you know I've never I don't know why I've never gotten into sci-fi I just I don't know what it is it's just uh, maybe because I just hated science I did bad in science in school and it was just like okay forget it it's just it's just uh, I like I like real I don't know but you know um, that's you know but I, it's great that you 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 know you have an outlet if you will because yeah I agree in the sense that. There's so much that we have to read in our work just to keep up with, with what's going on in the world and what's going on in the mm -hmm. practice and whatnot. And how do we apply it to, to our training sessions or, or whatever our work is in the corporate world. And that's, that's something that's, uh, that's needed. So on that note, um, this was a great conversation, Haral. I learned so much about you, um, not only personally, but also professionally and your, you know, and the words behind your posts and the rationale behind your posts, because, you know, people can, like you said at the, at, at the outset is, you know, people can assume, comment, put some negativity out there, but not really get to the, get to the meat of the matter for them to understand why you think that way and why they disagree. And how do you have an engaging conversation? Because when we're doing this work, it's about relationships it's about and it's mm. about you know from the outset it's about communication so uh Absolutely. exactly so so thanks for this i uh, i really appreciate it Haral, and uh thank you for this thank you so much andre all right so that uh that concludes another edition of the global conversations webcast so stay tuned for another episode uh where we bring you enlightening and uh enjoying uh, enjoyable conversations if you will and uh, until then, see you next time.